This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Hara Hotel, A Tale of Syrian Refugees in Greece, by Teresa Thornhill. This is a first-hand account of a Greek refugee camp and the stories of the refugees staying there. Syrian Kurd Jawan Azad left his home and family in Damascus in 2011 to flee military service under the al-Assad regime. After several troubled years as a refugee in Turkey, he arrived in Greece by sea, on the route taken by hundreds of thousands of his fellow Syrians seeking a safe haven in Europe. But as borders closed across the Balkans in early 2016, Juwan and his fellow Syrians found themselves blocked from traveling any further. Teresa Thornhill volunteered at Hara Hotel, a makeshift camp on the Greece-Macedonia border. An Arabic speaker, she met Syrians from all walks of life as she distributed clothing and organized activities for children. One of the Syrians was Juwan, who would later walk through the mountains of Macedonia to safety in Austria. In Hara Hotel, Thornhill interweaves a narrative of daily life at the camp with Juwan's extraordinary story, the recent history of the revolution in Syria, and an account of the ensuing civil war, painting a vivid picture of the predicament of Syrians trapped on Europe's borders. Hara Hotel, A Tale of Syrian Refugees in Greece, by Teresa Thornhill. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. It happened again, of course. Another school shooting. More thoughts and prayers. More calls for gun control that are so often limited to addressing, at best, just the very margins of the problem. At worst, there are proposals to exploit mass shootings carried out by young white men to criminalize young men of color. Two, with more cops, more suspensions, and more court referrals, further blur the line between school and prison, and to ensure that the former remains a rapid-fire pipeline into the latter. I have two excellent guests today. Dakota Hall is the executive director of Leaders Igniting Transformation, a youth of color-led organization fighting the school-to-prison pipeline in Milwaukee. Dimitri Holtzman is the director of education justice campaigns at the Center for Popular Democracy. Before we get rolling, we have a pretty nice and detailed weekly newsletter written by me and by guests on the show for those listeners who support this podcast at patreon.com slash the dig. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's Dakota Hall and Dimitri Holtzman. Dakota Hall and Dimitri Holtzman, welcome to the dig. Thanks, Daniel. Thank Thanks. you. Thank you for having us. So Milwaukee, even by the pretty horrible standards of the U.S. as a whole, has a gargantuan school-to-prison pipeline. Tell me about what students in the city are facing. 
Yeah, uh, students in Milwaukee public schools right now are facing um, a really large barrier to their ability to have freedom to thrive um, in our community. Um, on average, we're looking at about 10,000 students uh, being suspended in Milwaukee, um, and 80% of those are Black students. Um, and that's on top of the already mounting disparities that they face outside of the classroom. Uh, now they have to go inside of schools that are filled with metal detectors that forces almost 12,000 students to be screened um, for weapons as if they're criminals, um, and then face a high rate of suspension that cost them over 60,000 days of instruction last year. Um, so students are really, um, they're facing a really uh, a, a tough challenge around being able to be educated in a thriving community um, that doesn't criminalize them because of color of their skin. And Dimitri, what are, um, how does what's happening in Milwaukee in terms of the criminalization of students and the sort of prisonification of schools, how does that compare to what's happening elsewhere in the country? As you mentioned at the top, um, you know, Milwaukee's, uh, in terms of the school-to-prison pipeline, the rates of suspension, uh, you know, the effect of having police in schools is one of the worst places in the country. But uh, it's really difficult to, you know, set up this kind of hierarchy, if you will, because although it's a little bit worse, it's very, it's very similar and reflects patterns that we see across the country, uh, you know, from coast to coast. Um, and if we look, for example, at some of the other groups that us at the Center for Popular Democracy uh, work with, uh, in particular in New York uh, with the Urban Youth Collaborative, who've also been um, developing youth organizing and campaigns around the school to prison pipeline here in New York City. Um, you know, the, the statistics are, are similar. Um, we see massive investments uh, in black and brown students, but those investments being directed towards criminalizing them. So, for example, uh, if you look at New York City alone, spend something uh, to the tune of 750 to $60 million a year just to have police in schools, metal detectors, and all the other uh, you know, costs that come with suspending students who have to then go to court, etc. That's a lot of money that's being spent not in investing in supporting students, but in, in criminalizing them. And there's many, many other examples uh, of similar statistics, um, you know, uh, which reflect the way in which, uh, as Dakota was just saying off the top, uh, you know, students are being criminalized just because of the color of their skin instead of being prepared uh, and given an opportunity to to grow uh, and, and live their, you know, their fullest lives. Research ha- has shown that the presence, I believe, research has shown that the presence of police officers in school greatly increases the chance that a disciplinary matter that previously would have been taken care of as a normal inside the school disciplinary matter will result in an arrest. Absolutely. I mean, you know, you think about uh, what, what if, if anybody thinks about a police officer, right? Like what is the, the, the role of a police officer? You don't immediately uh, associate that with uh, a classroom or you shouldn't at least we associate that with the classroom and, and dealing with things that uh, are otherwise normal uh, youthful behavior you know um, and so indeed when the when the, the presence of police officers uh, is so high in schools uh, we can only expect that the um, uh, that the natural consequence of any disciplinary matter when a police officer is there is going to be dealt with as such rather than you know, a more restorative justice uh, oriented approach or 
uh, an approach to discipline that seeks first and foremost to keep kids in school rather than having them in contact with uh, with police officers. So indeed, it's um, you know it's not surprising that if you've got police officers in schools, that the natural consequences that students are uh, going to be dealing with them instead of teachers, counselors, uh, or other uh, emotional health uh, practitioners in schools, which should be the case. Dakota, uh, recently Milwaukee Public Schools entered into an agreement with the U.S. Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights to to deal with some of the issues in the city's dis- schools disciplinary system including the the really high rates of suspension of black students. Can you tell me a little bit about that issue of suspensions and perhaps uh, tell me about a, a, a typical case of, of what that looks like? Absolutely. Um, last year or in the 2015-2016 school year, um, over 10,000 students were suspended. Um, 80% of those suspensions were dealt out to black students. Um, in addition, uh, almost 90% of the expulsions were dealt out to black students. Um, and while um, black students only make up 53% of the student body, they are overrepresented in suspensions. Um, we've had students that we've encountered uh, tell us that they've been suspended um, simply for walking in the hallway when class was uh, about to begin. Um, because we have policed and militarized and criminalized our schools to such extent, um, something as small as an infraction as being late to class um, and not being in the classroom when the bell rings led one student to being suspended um, by a school safety aide. Uh, and that I think it just shows the mentality that um, that our public schools have been so underfunded that they're that they're so quick to kick students out because they don't have the resources there to actually um, handle misbehavior, handle some of the trauma that a lot of our young people are walking into the school with. Um, And I think that's highlighted in the Office of Civil Rights complaint against the Milwaukee Public Schools, highlighting the fact that it's not just this one year where you suspended 80% of uh, of the suspensions went out to black students. It's been a consistent trend for the past uh, seven years now where black students are overly represented in suspensions, and that's almost two graduation cohorts of students who have been failed um, by Milwaukee Public Schools policies. And I read that on for, for truancy, that students in the district can receive citations that require them to show up in court just for missing school. Yeah, and that's one of the like terrible things is, as part of our state law, as well as our district, local district school policy, um, after you miss so many days of school, um, you'll be referred to the Milwaukee Police Department um, for a house visit and a potential citation. Um, and then if the problem further escalates there, you'll be referred to the district attorney's office for prosecution. Um, and that's just not fair. We have a lot of students here who um, might be undocumented, um, who have parents without sending warrants. And the first point of contact should not be police or prosecutors. Um, if students are missing school at a severe rate, it shows that we need more social workers, we need more counselors to work with those students on why they're missing school. We need to provide more transportation and not cut back on transportation at this moment. Um, So it's just an awful policy that needs to be repealed uh, because nobody wants the police knocking at their door uh, for such um, a a minor infraction or it could be as simple as mistake. One of the stories we have uh, locally As a a former uh, Milwaukee Public School student, um, they had her at the wrong school. And so they were marking her attendance at a particular MPS high school. 
but she was no longer enrolled in that high school. And so two weeks later, the police is knocking on her door asking her and her parents, why hasn't she been in school? And all of that was due to an administrative uh, error that had her marked at the wrong school. Uh, so the policy should definitely be repealed because it's just so ineffective. Yeah, it seems so backward of all the people that government could have knocking on a family's door to see why a student isn't showing up at school to be sending a police officer. I, it's hard for me to imagine what what good that could do and easy to imagine all the harm. <laughs> it's also, you know, to be frank, it's also difficult to imagine that situation happening uh, in predominantly white communities or predominantly white schools. You know, I don't yes. think uh, there's... Uh, the same kind of concern that you'll see in a black community of that being the case of getting a police officer knocking on your door could be for a range of issues. You know, to have that uh, as, a, as a prospect for uh, your, your child missing school uh, does seem, uh, you know, way disproportionate uh, and also just obviously racially biased. I don't think any of us uh, imagine the same thing to be happening in predominantly white communities. And in addition, I also just wanted to say something which, you know, uh, in response to what Dakota just highlighted about the fact that we also have to understand the question of kind of, you know, misbehavior, if you will, um, as also being something connected to, you know, deep traumas that particularly black and brown communities face and that students from those communities bring with them into the classroom. And so instead of then, uh, you know, schools being a safe and supportive environment, that trauma is then doubled down on, you know, it's reinforced by um, whether you get suspended uh, from school or have an, uh, you know, some kind of infraction with a police officer, that's one thing, and that's what, what a lot of these statistics do focus on. I think there's also a kind of, you know, additional and often hidden um, uh, and deep, deep question around the psychological impact uh, that simply having a police officer or metal detector in your school has on these black and brown students that are, uh, you know, walking into those environments every day. So that even if you don't get uh, suspended, even if you don't um, uh, get uh, a citation or have to go to court, even if you are somehow as a black student able to navigate all of those obstacles that are, uh, uh, and you know, those obstacles and, and the, in essence, the state violence that they face in their schools every day, and don't end up in court, what is the you know, psychological impact that is embedded in these youth from very early age where your school is seen and looks more like a, a prison than it does uh, an environment uh, for you know, creativity and learning? And speaking of, of things that can exacerbate trauma and, and re-traumatize students, uh, there's the issue of students being physically restrained and put into, seclu- put into seclusion and According to uh, the, the the report that, that that you all did, that's mo- overwhelmingly kids with disabilities. It's really awful to see that um, basically ninety nine percent of seclusions and restraints that happen in our school district are students with disabilities, um, and that student the students with disabilities that may be physical. Um, invisible, whether they're in a wheelchair or need assistance walking, and everything down to like mental health um, problems or um, extremely traumatized kids who have been labeled as having um, an individual education plan um, and thus labeled as a student with a disability in our district. Um, none of like it, it's it's unfathomable to think about the fact that these students who have been identified by social workers and by caseworkers to say they need extra help that somehow our district believes it's okay to then say 
well, we can still restrain them and seclude them um, and have grown adults basically sometimes manhandle these children um, in order to make them um, orderly or um, they feel like they are just out of, you know, out of control. Um, that's not the way to handle young people. Every year that I that I can recall in recent years, a cell phone video emerges of a school resource officer manhandling a, a a student brutally. I, there was one, I think, in one of the Carolinas. There was one near me in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. Um, and just imagine all the ones that are that are not caught on cell phones because students are typically not allowed to have them on their person, I think. Yeah, and uh, right now MPS is actually implementing a new rule where as students enter the building, they must forfeit their cell phone in order to go into the school building and attend class. Um, and if students are unwilling to give up their cell phone, they will not be allowed into the building um, until they give up that cell phone. So now, um, you know, we're adding a further layer of criminalization onto these high school students who might use their phone for like music, help them relax while they're reading or uh, use it as a tool for good. And they're automatically assuming that high school students are going to use their cell phones in a negative way. And then it adds the layer of like, if there is misbehavior and uh, misconduct and abuse done by staff, students don't, no longer have that ability to film it. Um, and so what does that mean when we hear stories around uh, students being abused by a school resource officers or school safety aides, um, or even teachers at that point? Um, We've, uh, MPS has almost taken the ability to capture that, capture that uh, from students, uh, which reduces the likelihood of change being happening. It's also just justice for that student um, who has been harmed. Dakota, I want to ask you about the organizing work that's been taking place in Milwaukee to, to fight back against the criminalization of students. Uh, tell me about how your group and others have responded and also Tell me about what leaders igniting transformation is, who or, who it organizes, how it organizes. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really great question. So, leaders igniting igniting transformation. Um, Lit is a youth organizing group that organizes uh, young people of color uh, in Milwaukee, um, in high schools and college campuses. Um, so, our high school program right now is focusing on dismantling the school to prison pipeline and literally freeing the black and brown bodies uh, inside of our public school districts not to be criminalized. Um, so in response to um, the Office of Civil Rights complaint, um, our students have been on the ground inside of their schools, talking to their peers, bringing up the issue. Um, a few weeks ago, we held a press conference uh, before the school board meeting and presented our youth power agenda which calls for the uh, removal of police, metal detectors, uh, ending suspensions and expulsions, stopping seclusions and restraints, uh, ending the truancies uh, and arrests of students, while also while investing into things that our students clearly uh, stated that they need. They need more teachers. They need more social workers. They need more nurses. They need more therapists. They need smaller classroom sizes. Um, so they put together a really powerful agenda that they presented to the school board, um, as well as our young people are out in the media. Um, they've, they've written op-eds that have been published in national publications. Uh, locally, they've, they've made a lot of uh, headway. They've met with school board members. Um, they're really just, you know, they're doing that classic grassroots organizing um, that is hopefully going to get us the win and hopefully gets to raise the attention of, what's going on. Uh, since launching our campaign, 
we've sent more than 13,000 emails uh, to our school board as well as uh, high-level school administration officials. Um, so we know they have their message. Um, now it's just about getting them to pass the agenda, and we're going to do that through building uh, a youth of color power. Now, w- one question I have is that there are obviously lots of, of grounds for solidarity between uh, student activists and unionized teachers, but disciplinary issues historically have sometimes been a wedge between between the two otherwise, mm-hmm. you know, seemingly natural allies. But but my understanding is that LIT has been working with the Milwaukee Teachers Education Association. What does that look like? It, it's, a, it's a really special partnership that I think um, that can be modeled nationally and how students and teachers can come together around the best interest of of all parties. Um, I we, we acknowledge the fact that teachers are under-resourced, uh, overworked, um, and that puts a strain on them too. Um, and when the only option they're given from, from by administration is, uh, well, if you don't want them in your classroom, just like kick them out and then we'll handle it from there. And it often leads to suspension. Um, that's not the way to go. So when we call for lower classroom sizes, that's exactly what our teacher union is calling for because they recognize the fact that disciplinary things, uh, disciplinary measures is not healthy for the student body. And they're recognizing the fact that it often tends to be black and brown students who are facing this the most. So I think we've been able to uh, build a really cohesive partnership around identifying issues that we know would reduce suspension, but also invest back into our classrooms um, at, at uh, the same interest level of the, of the union. So I think we've been able to find the common ground and realize we're not each other's enemies. In fact, we can work together and push back against uh, the school board, push back against the state of Wisconsin when they talk about these drastic cuts that are going to uh, cut reading intervention specialists, they're going to cut social workers, they're going to cut teachers. Um, we know the more and more cuts we're going to receive, the higher and higher rates of suspension is going to happen. Um, so we found a lot of common ground around that, um, and we built a partnership where they're fully supporting us, um, and they're uplifting our report, uh, they're uh, helping us get signatures. Um, and so it's a really beautiful thing to see that um, youth of color groups fighting against school-to-prison pipeline can work with their teachers union on this issue. I think that's really powerful, uh, putting the the issue of criminalization in the larger political economic context of what's going on with uh, with public education. I wonder how the fight in in schools has also been related to and, and shaped by the the larger struggles in Milwaukee over police violence, including the killings. If I have the pronunciation correct, of of uh, Silville Smith and Dontre Hamilton, mm-hmm. and over the larger issues of of inequity and segregation, which are incredibly long running problems, but that I imagine have intensified under Governor Scott Walker. How does this struggle over criminalization fit into those those other fights? Criminalization happens inside of our schools and outside of our schools. Um, there is a cycle um, that black and brown folks are facing here in our communities. When we talk about the, the cycle of criminalization inside of schools, when we look at Milwaukee Public Schools in a post-Parkland lens, we realize the fact that the last time a school shooting happened inside of our, our, our public schools, was an officer's gun discharging and shooting a young woman in the leg, right? So that that same stuff that happens with Dontre Hamilton and Savelle Smith outside has been brought inside of our schools where police officers, you know, are shooting young black people inside of our school. Whether it's an accident or not, there is no reason that a 
12-year-old girl, I believe, should have been shot by the police. If you can't do your job without a gun, I question your ability, right? And so that criminalization happens even um, for most adolescents in Milwaukee County. Uh, they're two times more likely to be arrested uh, than their white peers. Um, and that plays effect into the, the post-high school world where Black students um, have a 25% uh, less rate and enrolling into a post-secondary career option than their white students. Um, that looks like uh, our life expectancy for Black residents uh, going backwards in the state of Wisconsin, which was the only state to go backwards uh, in, the, in the white to Black life disparity. So the criminalization, and um, I think while we know Wisconsin incarcerates the most Black males, we know Wisconsin has the largest disciplinary gap between white and Black students, that stress literally uh, has been highlighted in public health documents to lower life expectancy for Black residents. And we're the only state in the nation that's gone backwards between white and Black uh, life expectancy. And I think that, says, I, that should say it all. And while these problems are by no means unique to, to Milwaukee, it is worth underlining that in the past, at least, the, the metropolitan area has been ranked the most segregated in the entire country. And they're also that segregation is shaping and is shaped by massive wealth inequalities as well. Absolutely. Um, our, our metro is still, I believe, in the top um, top five in terms of segregation uh, that plays down into our economics where. Uh, our median income is nearly uh, is almost half of what our surrounding districts are. Uh, the average uh, median income household in in Milwaukee is around thirty six thousand, and the surrounding communities average is seventy two thousand. Uh, and then we see that also playing into our schools when we have uh, such uh, economic instability in the city of Milwaukee. We see a thirty five percent less graduation rate. Um, which turns out to be 1,700 students if our graduation rate was as similar to our surrounding districts, uh, which economics plays wow. a large role in student success. So, I mean, the, the divestment of our communities equals almost 1,700 students per year not graduating. Like, that's a huge social uh, cost onto our community. And highlighting one last one last thing about that is but since – public education is so dependent on property taxes for funding that metropolitan level segregation combined with the wealth inequalities locks unequal funding of public schools and thus unequal outcomes and opportunities for for poor students of color in place. Absolutely. Um, Dimitri, I, I'd like to, you to put this in some national context. Since, since the Parkland massacre, student activists have put an unprecedented spotlight on the issue of guns in American society. But but too often these these discussions over guns and gun control focus on this very particular subset of shootings that disproportionately impact white people. School shootings in suburban schools carried out with assault weapons, which are obviously horrible, but but there are a number of things lacking from this debate. The debate rarely addresses handguns, which kill so many young black people, and the debates often ignore police violence and mass incarceration, two things that in particular, ill-conceived gun control measures can actually make a lot worse. Tell me about how youth activists of color are responding, not not only in Milwaukee, but but throughout the country after Parkland. I mean, I, I do just, um, while, while we, yeah, and just, just uh, you know, hearing, I, I want to go back just quickly to, to the, the uh, question that you asked about, you know, teachers uh, and youth kind of, you know. Oh, please. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, joining forces, and I wanted to just actually give props to Dakota and and the other youth at Lit 
um, who, you know, as you mentioned, I think are, are demonstrating quite a unique example uh, of how it is that the there can be better alignment between uh, the youth's demands for uh, more safe and supportive schooling environments, uh, which includes like, divesting from you know those policies um, that put police in schools, uh, you know that allow for high rates of suspension, etc., and putting that that against the fight uh, that's going on in Milwaukee, but also in many other places where teachers are starting, you know, to stand up and demand fair, uh, fair wages and better um, and more equitable resources in, in schools, which I think is going to be an important message going forward is that, you know, often those two campaigns or demands uh, on the one side of the teachers and the other of the youth uh, are, you know, developed along separate tracks. I do think we're in a political moment where there's a, a need for a new call to understand that what the youth are asking for aligns with what the teachers need in order to create the kinds of environment that both teachers and youth uh, should be uh, aspiring towards, right? And secondly, to just note that, you know, within that context, it's the um, having those police officers in schools uh, is also disruptive to the kinds of relationships that we should be expecting uh, to be developed between, you know, students and, and, and youth. And, and I think Dakota kind of highlighted how that can happen really, really well. Um, de- de- definitely, as is often said, um, teachers' working conditions are students' learning conditions and vice versa. Exactly, exactly. The issues are one in, one in the same. And, you know, to, to again, just even look at uh, to your question about post-Parkland and what we've seen, what we have seen is a renewed kind of energy around the question of school safety um, you know, it, it's unfortunate that it took a tragedy like uh, uh, the shooting at Parkland um, uh, to raise this debate again. Uh, and so, you know, on the one hand, it's an advantage because it is putting this question front and center. It's developing a whole new level of mobilization among students across the country. Uh, but so the youth are standing in solidarity with the Parkland students who, you know, have been pushed to the forefront of what's actually been a very long an ongoing debate around, you know, school safety in the context of the school to prison pipeline. And so while they're standing in solidarity with those students, they're also demanding that the voices of black and brown youth who have a very particular experience, uh, particularly following the kinds of tragedies that uh, that we've seen. So, for example, speaking about Columbine, we also know that since the Columbine shooting, there's been more than a billion dollars of federal funding allocated to schools for quote-unquote school safety. But as we've been discussing throughout this whole debate, that school safety, uh, you know, in those terms has actually led to increased police presence, uh, zero-tolerance policies, for example, and ultimately the criminalization of black and brown communities. So in other words, we have a tragedy that happens in a a school that affects uh, more white students. There's a big debate that comes out of that. And one of the possible downsides of that debate is that black and brown students then bear the brunt of what's a very narrow-minded uh, approach to school safety, which in fact uh, adds only more uh, and higher prospects of violence to schools uh, than 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 uh, than actually making those students safe. So to look just uh, one more piece on that, to look for example at what happened in Milwaukee, post Parkland, you know, at the same time as as I described earlier on, that the teachers are in Milwaukee itself are uh, organizing. Um, uh, and and trying to resist the proposed uh, cuts to education funding um, and being told that the cuts have to happen. 
At the same time as that's happening at the state level, um, you know, the governor signed um, legislation to allocate an additional $100 million to school safety, which focuses mostly on, again, more school resource officers, more police in schools. Um, and so there's no money for school safety in the way in which both uh, the students and teachers are demanding, uh, but, uh, and even for basic school resources. But there's, again, the drop of a hat, there's money that's available for more police officers and guns. And we're seeing the same thing happen across across the country. And so uh, just lastly on, on this, this particular point, you know, uh, the Youth at Lit and a number of other groups, uh, both in the Center for Popular Democracies Network and other important uh, national youth alliances like the Alliance for Education Justice, uh, folks from uh, the Advancement Project and a number of other national institutions that have a long history in trying to break and dismantle the school to prison pipeline, have put together a statement to say that while we support the demonstrations around Columbine, let's also um, let's also commemorate and understand. Um, sorry, commemorate and, and raise the fact that there are the killings of Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, Freddie Gray. There was the youth in Detroit who you know um, was shot at because because uh, he because he, he got lost and knocked on a door. This the experience of black and brown students on a daily basis that absolutely must be centered in any debate about school safety. School safety has been an issue for them for a long time, and it's not just post-Parkland. Um, although the black and brown students are demanding that in this post-Parkland moment um, that we don't have a repeat of the post-Columbine situation where we have so much money invested in only recriminalizing them, re-traumatizing them, and ultimately not even preventing any of these these kinds of mass shootings that we see uh, at the end of the day in any case. One thing to, to add, and then one last question, because I know you have to run, Dakota. One caveat to add, I, I'm not sure if you would agree, but to, to me it's been pretty remarkable to the degree to which the the Parkland students have been aware of, of these issues and made a point of, of, of making space for the, the, the voices of students who—, who might be coming from fairly different backgrounds from them. Uh, I think you're absolutely correct that there um, has been quite an, uh, it's been quite inspiring to watch the way in which the Parkland youth and many others that have been given the platform have used that to to highlight the fact that they're only getting that, be- um, often only getting that because, uh, you know, they aren't students of color. I mean, if we think about uh, post-Parkland, there was, um, uh, a press, a press, um, sorry, a, a press conference called by some of the black students from uh, Stoneman Douglas High School. Um, there was not anywhere close to the kind of national media attention that was given to them as was given to their fellow um, uh, students in the weeks before that. There was even a description of one of the black students who was saying that you know shortly after they implemented some changes at uh, Stoneman Douglas High School. Uh, you know, having clear backpacks and more police presence, that they'd immediately uh, felt, uh, you know, less safe. They'd immediately been approached by police officers who were asking where they're going, uh, you know, in other words, being hyper-surveilled. And, and black students feeling like, again, even at, at Stoneman Douglas School, they were being uh, disproportionately targeted already in a way that reflects the national patterns. But I think it's, it, you're right, it's been important to see that there's been... Um, you know, a broadening, uh, oh, sorry, that the, that the uh, Parkland students have used their platform to call for racial justice, to give uh, 
space to to black students even from you know across the country and to help centering their voices uh, I think it's going to be important that 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 continues and that really let the youth show us how to do you know broad intersectional organizing um, that's able to center the experiences of black and brown students but also build a broader solidarity which uh, we, we only hope to see continuing going forward. And uh, last question for either or both of you. Um, I wanted to return just quickly to this uh, agreement we reached with the Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights. Um, And that that agreement was only reached after the office had launched an investigation. And that was initiated, I believe, under the Obama administration. I'm guessing that things have been a bit different in the department's civil rights office under Betsy DeVos, a Wisconsinite, I should or no, Michiganite, but close up. Yeah. Yeah. well, it, it has, in, and in fact, um, unsurprisingly, but unfortunately, what we have seen, uh, along with Betsy DeVos's overall project of really trying to dismantle the public education system as a whole, um, she's also announced um, that she was going to be uh, rescinding the um, the national guidelines that were actually adopted under the Obama administration that deal specifically with um, school discipline codes, and that, you know, uh, speak specifically also to the um, uh, uh, the settlement agreement and the investigation conducted by the Office of Civil Rights by the National Department, um, and that would have that would have helped get us to the point where this investigation has now um, uh, uh, created the obligation for Milwaukee public schools to reform, um, you know, ultimately the the, the racist uh, school discipline policy that exists. So. The fact that Betsy DeVos is moving to rescind those those guidelines, um, you know, it, it, we can only think of what that's going to mean for future situations where the Office of Civil Rights uh, could otherwise investigate the kinds of disparities and, and consequences of a, a failed school discipline policy like in Milwaukee. Um, and she's also at the same time been moving to cut funding from that Office of Civil Rights. And so, again, not surprising, uh, but does give us a sense of... Uh, uh, how how much more difficult the fight uh, to ensure that there is um, you know less racial discrimination, more equity in school discipline uh, under the DeVos administration, given the fact that they are dismantling such important pieces uh, and policies that look to protect particularly black and brown students. Dakota, anything to add on that, or or anything else that we've discussed? Yeah, I mean, I think. Uh, uh, even touching back on the Parkland situation, um, I think it's a, a really good example of how young white youth can use their privilege and moment um, to uplift what black youth have been calling for for almost a decade now. Um, in addition, uh, around Betsy DeVos, I mean, I think what um, this current administration has done to public education um, and education as, as a whole has been a disgraceful act, um, and they need to um, stop quite frankly, um, and they need to, um, they, they need to go, right? And I think this highlights <laughs> the importance of um, uh, national and local elections um, throughout, the, uh, throughout the country, is that we really have to take a keen look at who is going to support our public schools. I mean, around the nation, we've seen teachers walk out, we've seen teachers strike uh, and not have it anymore. Um, and I think that's a really good call that we need to look at who we're electing and what their stances are in public education. So that way we don't get another Betsy DeVos. We don't get another Oklahoma. We don't get um, 
anyone else in, in, in office who wants to devalue and suffocate our public schools. Dakota Hall and Dimitri Holtzman, thank you both so much. Thank you very much. I look forward to speaking with you again and um, shout out to all your great listeners. Yeah, thanks very much. Dakota Hall is the executive director of Leaders Igniting Transformation. And Dimitri Holtzman is the director of education justice campaigns at the Center for Popular Democracy. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that police are not representatives of civil society, but rather representatives of the state whose task is to administer the state against civil society. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, most weeks, twice a week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If you're on iTunes, please do leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners, as does you telling your friends, family, strangers about the show. All propaganda on our behalf is greatly appreciated. And last but by no means least, please do find us on patreon.com slash the dig and make a contribution and get access to our weekly newsletter. Even a few bucks is a big help. Thank you.